We've been spending our summer in the Psalms, haven't we? The, the songs of Jesus, the, the worship treasury of ancient Israel. Uh, these Psalms, we've said each week, give us a unique way of dealing with our emotions, with our feelings. Uh, unique because, on the one hand, for much of its history, religion across the world has tended to deal actually quite badly with extreme human emotion because there's this fear of admitting fully and and facing what's there. Why? If somehow you're trying to warrant God's blessing in your life and you're trying to do so through having a good record and a clean slate, then you're psychologically unable to admit what's, what's dark or intense or turbulent that's going on down there. You can't admit who you are, at least not that part of you. You can't look at what's really going on in your heart. And, and if the whole basis of your understanding is, I'm good, I'm, I'm a good person, I, I've, I've got it all together, uh, then the only way that I know that God will listen to me is to be pre- by pretending that everything that doesn't fit that image is, is somehow tucked away. In religious circles, there's this strong tendency to deny and to repress and to ignore emotion. Then you have the secular world, which is increasingly the dominant feeling or the dominant mood for society. And there's a tendency to see the expression of feelings or the discovery of feelings as a good end in itself. Your feelings are the final, the decisive arbitrator of truth in your life. I feel it. How can it be wrong? And the Psalms say, on the one hand, it's harmful, it's dangerous to deny and ignore your feelings, but, but just venting them doesn't help either. You don't stuff them down, but you also don't bow down to them and make a lord out of them. And we start every one of these sermons by saying the same thing. The Psalms are providing a third alternative, not denying, but also not giving supremacy to emotion, a third way. And that's a way of praying through feelings, not just praying about your feelings, but actually taking them before God to pour them out in a reflective way, to process them in the presence of God, in the light of who he is and and who we are in his eyes. Next week, we're going to do some summing up on all of this. But what we've been doing for the last several weeks is taking one emotion and working through it a week at a time. We looked at doubt. We looked at the emotions attached to sorrow and grief. We looked last week at fear. In each case, we saw how to take those feelings before God in prayer. It's almost like we're leafing our way through God's counseling notebook a week at a time. And today we look at another tough one. Today we're focused on guilt. Having your heart broken with that sense of failure, that liability, that general unworthiness about who you are. Psalm 130 that Christy just read has only eight verses in it, but eight wonderful verses. And there you see guilt and shame compared to a pit, like a hole that you've sunk down into. And we're also showing a kind of rope that's dropped down into the bottom of the pit, into the, into the depths of that guilt and shame. And then we're given a little bit of an idea of how you might use that to climb out. So we have the sinkhole of guilt and shame. We have the rope given to a person sunk down in that hole. And then we have something about climbing out. You find the sinkhole in verses 1 and 2. You find the rope 
in verses 3 to 4, and then again in 7 and 8, and you find the climb going on in verses 5 and 6. All of that's in your order of service on the back page. In fact, the whole psalm is printed there. So I'm going to invite you to have that in front of you now. Let's start with the sinkhole, because notice there's this vivid image here. It has to do with sinking and with standing. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your eyes be attentive to my cry for mercy. For if you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? What's the writer getting at here? First first of all, you have this, this idea of sinking. Out of the depths or out of the deep. It's something that that comes up in lots of other places in the Psalms. For example, Psalm 69. Save me, God. I'm up to my neck. I'm sinking in the miry depths where there is no foothold. In Psalm 40, one of those gratitude psalms, the psalmist says, God heard my cry. He lifted me out of that slimy pit, out of the mire and the mud. He put my feet on a rock and he gave me a firm place to stand. And again, what's going on here? I mean, obviously, the psalmists, they're speaking emotionally. They're talking about what it feels. I feel like I'm in quicksand. I'm going down. There's nothing to grab onto. And the more that I kick and the more that I struggle, the faster I'm sinking. And now I'm up to my neck in it, and I feel like I'm going to die. A pretty vivid, visceral image. And maybe you can attach some memory or maybe it's even in the present, to to a moment when you felt guilt like that. Shame that just sunk you right to the bottom. We don't know actually the name or the life story of the person who wrote this song. But we do know something about his experience, about guilt and about shame. How do we know it? Have a look now at verse 2. Generally speaking, right, when, when you're trapped in the bottom of a hole, You're going to cry out for what? For help. But he's not crying for help. What's he crying for? Mercy. For mercy. When you get to verse 3, we see exactly what he's talking about. I can't bear up under the weight, under the record of my sins. He's talking about guilt and about shame, that sense of failure and unworthiness and and self-blame. And he feels like he's drowning in it. Actually, the first thing I want to ask, I think we should ask about a psalm like this and and about the subject of guilt is, is whether it's really even very relevant anymore. Because you could probably say, you could make a good case for saying that, you know, maybe that's the way it was in the past. People lived under these traditional oppressive systems of of morality and religion and they were guilt-ridden, but it's different now. We're more enlightened. We've freed ourselves from, from the shackles of that outdated morality. And we live in an age of talk shows and tabloids and Twitter. And, and people talk freely and openly about things that just 20 or 30 years ago, they would never dare to speak out loud. And by the way, there's, there's good news and there's bad news in that change. I don't think it was really very good for people to spend their lives racked by guilt. I don't think that's God's plan or design for human beings. But on the other hand, we now live in this society that says, you get to decide what's right and wrong for you. You Don't let people put this this kind of guilt trip on you. Don't let your family or your friends, don't let your culture. You decide what's right. You decide what's wrong. You march to your own drummer. 
And more and more people are doing that. And more and more, guilt itself begins to feel like an antiquated idea. When you get to the Bible, there's two words that are used to describe this emotion. On the one hand, there's guilt. On the other, there's shame. And I know they kind of overlap, but they're not the same. In the Bible, the opposite of guilt is innocence. But in the Bible, the opposite of shame is glory. And there's a difference. In guilt, you're usually dealing with something very specific. I broke a rule. I knew it, and I did something I know I shouldn't have done. But shame is something else. It's more generalized. It's, it's more diffuse. In shame, I'm not saying I feel bad about something I've done. With shame, I feel bad about who I am. I feel bad about what I am. In guilt, we're concerned about the negative. I know the rules. I broke them. But in shame, we're saying, I aspired to be something. I had a dream of who I would be, and I failed at it. It's more generalized, but in some ways, it's, it's more devastating. If you get caught in a lie, for example, you could feel both guilt and shame. But here's the difference. You feel guilt because you broke a rule. You, you knew it wasn't right, but you lied anyway. But you feel shame Because you say, I didn't think I was the kind of person who lies. I thought I was stronger than that. I thought I had more integrity than that. It says something about your character and about who you are. So guilt and shame, there are parallels, but they're not the same. And sometimes modern authors, I think, are recognizing that even though this sense of guilt is fading away, More and more people are saying that moral standards, these things are up to me, and it's getting harder and harder for people to feel guilty about breaking a rule if they don't believe it's their rule. We can justify just about anything that we do. But as a society, even though guilt is fading away, we're still afflicted with this nagging sense of shame, this loss of esteem. People are plagued with this feeling that their life itself is in disarray, but they don't know why. Years ago, Franz Kafka, famous writer, uh, none of his books are ever going to be made into Disney movies. Dark, just sad, trying books. But He said that the problem modern people have now is that we feel like sinners, but we don't believe in sin. Right? We, we feel shame, but we don't believe in guilt. There's no one thing I feel like I've done wrong anymore, but still I feel like there's something wrong with me. That's kind of weird, right? For the last 100 years, we've been doing everything we can to loosen the moral strictures, everything so that we can say, look, you get to decide what's right, what's wrong for you. And most people in the GTA generally do, but they're still sinking. And even without guilt, there is still that persistent sense of shame. In fact, we've kind of messed ourselves up here because without guilt, we have no way really of doing anything about our shame. In some ways, to be sinking in it, to be sinking in shame, sinking with this this general sense of unworthiness, uh, is made worse because we have absolutely no sense of where it came from. So the first thing to see in Psalm 130 is that, in fact, it can be very, very relevant in our world. There is a sinkhole, and many people have fallen into it. 
But what do we do about it? What do we do about shame or, or the guilt that might be behind it? That sense we're liable, that we're failures. That idea that somehow we've fallen short. Well, here's the second major theme or thread in the psalm. There's this rope. This rope that's thrown down to us. I mean, it's what you need when you're trapped in the bottom of a hole, isn't it? You don't need somebody else to jump in there with you. That just leaves two of you trapped at the bottom of the hole. But a lot of the time, that's what we look for, just somebody to share in our suffering at the bottom. In fact, all you can do down there is hang on to each other, and maybe you sink faster. What you need is something else. So what's the rope? Well, this rope actually has two strands interwoven. You don't just grab onto one, you grab onto them both. You need a standard, and you need a redeemer. Verses 7 and 8. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. Now, what's the psalmist getting at? I'll show you, and then we'll go back and we'll explain how those two things are absolutely critical. The first thing you need is a standard. Now, this might be obvious, but let me show you this again in verse 3. He says, Lord, if you kept a record of sins... And the psalm writer's not denying that there's a record. This is what he grabs hold to, first of all, that there is this objective standard by which he can measure himself. There is a record. Uh, Here's the problem for our generation. We don't believe that anymore. Uh, Maybe we have a complex. We call it bad child-rearing. We psychologize it. We socialize it. We do everything we can, and yet we still have this sense of failure And we don't know why anymore. And here's the reason why. When you feel guilt or when you feel shame, you have to make a decision. Are you going to resist it or are you going to agree with it? It's the most important decision. You decide whether you resist it or agree with it. And there's plenty of people who want to say, all guilt is a bad thing. You shouldn't feel guilty. I've been doing some counseling just as a tune-up in my own life. And my counselor keeps saying, you're only human. Don't feel guilty about it. And I keep wanting to respond, but, but I'm here to exactly work on exactly those things that I'm feeling guilty about. I don't want to just ignore them. On the other hand, there's people who are so racked by guilt, guilt over everything. It bothers them so much that they go through life feeling paralyzed. You know, God has given us this little warning bell inside. We call it conscience sometimes. But it's far from perfect. The human conscience, it can be blunted. It can be dulled to the point where it's no longer a good guide. Or it can be ratcheted up. It can be turbocharged to the point that it's setting, up, setting off false alarms all over the place. So what do you do? You need an objective moral standard. Here's the perfect example, right there in verse 3. Oh Lord, if you kept the record, what it literally says, if you're watching my sins, the Hebrew language, the Old Testament, is much more anthropomorphic. I mean, it's just filled with these images, much more pictorial than English. If you watch my sins, what he's really saying is the eyes of God are the eyes that really matter. See, in your parents' eyes, maybe you feel ashamed because they wanted you to make... a a lot of yourself, a great career, a professional, huge income, and and you didn't do that. Let's test it. Is that a sin? In God's eyes, no. Then throw it away. 
Forget it. That's false guilt. On the other hand, what if you've committed adultery? And maybe you say, well, I needed to. I'm trapped in a loveless marriage. I needed an escape. And and maybe it feels okay. And maybe all your friends said, it's all right. What do God's eyes think? In God's eyes, it's a sin. You confess it. And if in God's eyes, it's not a sin, resist it, send it away. But when you have God's eyes in your life, you have this objective standard and you can deal with it. It's the first thing. It's, it's the first of those two intertwining threads in the rope. When you believe in the moral law of God, if you believe that somewhere there's a set of eyes and nobody else's eyes matter more than God's, that he is the standard of what's right and what's wrong, that's good news. I mean, I suppose sometimes we think that that's bad news, that God's always watching, but that's good news. It means you have something to grab onto. It means that you're free from the weight of knowing only what other people say about you. And you're free from the weight of your own conscience, which maybe is beating you up needlessly. But that's not enough. If that's the only strand that you have. Again, think of the rope as having two intertwining strands. If the very first thing that you see is the moral law and that's all that you have, your experience will be, well, this is what the psalmist said, Lord, who can stand? Who can stand under the weight of that? I can't possibly live up. So here's the second thing you need. You need a new redeemer. That's the second thing. And it's there in verses 7 and 8. He says, O Israel, hope in the Lord. And then in verse 8, for he himself will redeem Israel from all of their sins. Now think about this for a second. Why would he be telling Israel to hope in the Lord? What else had they been hoping in? Why does he say God himself will come to redeem Israel? Here it is. In the Bible, hope, the word hope, is the basis for your future. And we substitute lots of other things in there. If your career is your hope for the future and it hits a snag, if your family is your hope, but a rift opens up between you and your kids or you and your parents, if you're looking to these things to carry a weight that they cannot support, they are not a redeemer. People say, I know that God has forgiven me, but I can't forgive myself. What they're really saying is that the biblical God is not their God. The biblical redeemer is not their redeemer. And the biblical hope is not their hope. The reason you're unable to forgive, the reason you still have that nagging sense of unworthiness is because you're looking for something else to redeem you. And you're saying, I don't have that. And without that, I cannot stand. I can't hold up my head. And what it really means is you have to shift. You have to look underneath all of those bad feelings and ask, what is it that I've been looking to for my redemption? What is it that I've latched on to for my hope? And then you have to say to yourself, I will hope in the Lord for he will surely come. Now, how do you do that practically? This is, this is kind of important. I'll have a look now at verse 8. You know, the thing about the Psalms is that the the psalmist, under the, the inspiration of God's spirit, the psalmist often gets the general idea, the, the right idea. Uh, but we, at, at our starting point in history, looking back, 
we're able to see the specifics. In verse 8, it says, he himself will redeem Israel. The psalmist is saying, somehow, again, under the work of the Spirit, he realizes God himself will someday come. God himself. God will come. He'll redeem us with unfailing love. That's right there in verse 7. Think of it this way. God sees you. He sees you right to the core, right to the bottom. He knows everything about you. He knows what's beautiful and worthy of esteem. And he knows what's wrong. He knows the things that you only whisper in the dark, that leave you racked with guilt and filled with the shame at the bottom of the hole. And the thing you need to finally get healed, to heal your self-image, to heal that unworthiness, is to know that somebody who sees you right to the core, right to the bottom, has been willing to sacrifice for you nevertheless because he values you like that. That's the cross, isn't it? Jesus on the cross saying, I know you top to bottom. My eyes see everything and I love you anyway. It's the knowledge of that that can transform and change you. You need an absolute standard, but you also desperately need a new redeemer. You recognize all the other things in your life that you had been hoping in as what they are. False hope. False redeemers. So let's recap. First, you see the sinkhole. Secondly, you see the rope, the two things that you need. An absolute standard and a new redeemer. Let me just say in in two minutes something about the process, about the climb out. Suppose you're sitting here listening and you decide today is your day. You say, I realize that even though I've been a professing Christian now for years, I'm still driven by guilt. And I feel like I'm sinking. And now I realize why. Today is your day. Or maybe you're new to this whole thing. You're not yet a believer in Jesus, but you say, this is what I need. Today is my day. I don't know where you are. But even if today the penny drops and you start to change, you want to change, let me say this. It's going to take some time. I was at graduation for my son in the gym. Uh, It's an older school, and I was looking up at the roof of the gym, and I could see the, the latches, the large carboners where ropes used to hang. They don't do that anymore. That was the torture test for us in gym. Remember the ropes hung from the ceiling, and you had 30 seconds to climb as high as you could? It was awful. It took some time, it took some strength, and it took some work. I will wait for the Lord, my whole being waits. This is verse 5. And in his word I put my hope, I will wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. You're going to find that some days for a little while, you're going to operate still on the old approach. It's almost like as a Christian, you've got the A drive and the B drive, and you can still boot up under either system. Any of you remember when computers had the A drive and the B? Yeah, you know what I'm getting at? You still have these two competing self-images going on. It's what Paul called the old person and the new person, the old man and the new man. The fact of the matter is it's a process, but get started. It may take some time. It may take some waiting. But you start. And as you start, 
you wait expectantly. You wait for the morning. It may feel like it's taking forever, but it always comes. So you wait expectantly. You get hold of the rope and you know that you're going to get pulled out because you know who's at the other side. Not just that. You don't just wait. You don't just wait expectantly. You wait in community. Look at verse 7. Oh, Israel, he says. What's going on? He's turning to other people. Because once you have other people who know about the rope, grabbing onto the rope together is wonderful. Just grabbing onto each other at the bottom of the hole, that does nothing. But grabbing the rope together, that's what the church is all about. That's what small groups are all about. That's what community is for. Talk to each other. Tell each other. He's getting himself out of the sinkhole. He's, he's, he's working at it. He's, he's doing counseling. He's in God's words. He's becoming a, a man of prayer. Talk to each other. Fourthly, you do it reverently. Verse 4, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. says, but with you there is forgiveness, so that we can with reverence serve you. The Bible says the more you see how loving God is, the more you will revere, revere him. You're humbled, you're amazed, you're overcome. The Christian self-image is this really unique paradox. You have boldness and you have humility. Because what you know is this, I'm a sinner, but I'm loved. You wait patiently, you wait expectantly, you wait in community, you wait reverently. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us time to think about these things. And we ask that you would help us to not just sink in our own guilt, not just to talk to other people about our guilt, certainly not simply just to ignore it or not to be crushed by it, but help us to pray our way through it in your presence. Help us to understand what it means to grab hold of that great rope that you've lowered down to us. To hear you saying he himself will come with unfailing love and redeem us from all of our sins. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.